On my podcast today, we are dealing with science, astrophysics, space. Not the final frontier. Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) They will intentionally not open your... My bad. That's my phone. On the podcast today is Ronald Gamble, scientist at NASA. Peace, brother. How you doing? Doing good. Doing good. Happy to be here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So tell me, how did you, how did your love for science first start out? Jeez, I think I was an early age. We're talking maybe, maybe elementary school, middle school, something like that. You know, I was a little kid <clears throat> bouncing around the neighborhood. I was good at math. I like to like the you know like the sciences. My mom's always she already she always had me in like a in front of like a solar system placemat. So early on, I was like, okay, I like the stars. I like the planets. Comets were cool. Um, but then, you know, I really took took to it once I got into middle school and I and then I became aware, well, I'm actually good at this stuff. Um, and then, you know, some of the, the other curiosities come up, came up and, you know, I started asking more questions. Mm-hmm. The questions started getting harder. And my mom was like, well, you need to ask somebody else because I can't answer those. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Absolutely. You know, and then, you know, it kind of snowballed from there. It sparked up. I was in, I was in a science camp from then on, um, continuing to math, continuing to science. I used to read encyclopedias for fun. Um, oh, wow. In the library, go to the non, the nonfiction section, pop open the books. All right. What information, what new information can I figure out today? What uh, age was, was the science time. camp? This was probably middle school, so about about 10, 11. Okay. About 11 years old, I started up that, with that. So it was early on. So I, I knew I wanted to be some kind of scientist early on. I got to be in the sciences. Um, and so high school, I took physics for the first time, you know, and, and growing up, you know, in, I grew up in the south side of Raleigh, so shout out to Raleigh. North Carolina. There's some folks out there that, you know, yeah, they already know who I am. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, we didn't, we didn't have examples like that. So I'm Afro-Latino, so we didn't have, there were no examples that I could see in my neighborhood. Definitely nobody at my school or in my circle of friends. Um, And so it was really, all right, if I want to go down this path, I got to do it by myself. Okay. Um, In your school, what yeah. was the population of, of black or black and Latino kids? It was mixed. So I would say my high school was probably about maybe like about. I would say maybe like 30 percent black, 20 percent Latin. And then the other half was white and Asian Indian. Okay. Um, so it was it was a good mix. But. The mixture of students in my classes we're mostly white and Asian and Indian. Mm-hmm. And so even in my classes, I'm like, okay, yeah, I've got, my friends are here, but they're not in my classes. They weren't in the advanced classes. They weren't taking physics with me. And so I'm still, you know, I would get out of class, get in some trouble during lunchtime, whatever. I might skip a class or two. Um, <laughs> they can't get me in trouble now because I'm out of school. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, yeah, just getting, now going back into class, I'm like, I'm like, okay, I got to go back into the mix and stuff, right? You know, you got to code switch a little bit. 
I learned that early on in high school, code switching. Um, But, you know, after that, I then realized, oh, I can do the same thing. I can learn the same thing with my people. And so that's when I discovered, oh, I'm going to an HBCU. Mm. Got to. So went to A&T, shout out to Aggies, Aggie Pride. Worldwide. All right. Um, the bachelor's there, master's, PhD. I taught there for seven years. You taught there for Five seven classes. years. Okay. Yes. So I did I did it all at AT. Um, and so that was that was really a place that really nurtured, really nurtured the mind, the heart, the soul, the body. Like the HBCU experience is it can't be replicated. It's one of a kind, it's one of a million. People look like you all the time. See, look, and they, they look like you. They talk like you. Yeah. Yep. You sure, got experiences. Yeah. Yep. You know. <clears throat> and so being in that environment combined with the science and the math, it was it was amazing. Yeah. Um, and so that was that was the journey. Um, the journey extended a little bit beyond that into, you know, what I'm doing now. Yeah, but, uh, tell me about that. How do you how do you get the PhD and everything? You, go, you know what? Um, NASA. Yeah, that's next. <laughs> so yeah, actually, so my PhD um, it was the first one in astrophysics at ANT. Uh, Yours was. Yeah, <laughs> it was the first one, the very first one. Um, so it was difficult. It was hard to do. So okay. I I knew it was a difficult path. I knew I was trying to be a trailblazer, if you will. But you know, at the same time, I was trying to be humble with it. You know. Still trying to figure it out. Still, at least I can at least get this completed, get this written up, so that somebody else coming up behind me can be like, okay, I can do that too. Mm-hmm. And so some other stride, and they and they definitely asked me about it. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go work with this person. Go navigate here. You want to be in this department. Um, and so it was definitely, definitely a good experience. I would not trade it for the world. Um, I would hope not, man. To to be out out. to be a guy on the outside who doesn't know you that well. I'm proud of you for doing what you're doing. I appreciate absolutely. it. Absolutely. It's very impressive. Like, yeah, I, so, I was like, if I if I can get him on here, like I will die a happy man. Oh, <laughs> you know, so is is to to hear to hear you speak on it and, and things that you you've done and being the first one from from uh as an Aggie, you know, like uh, as a black man, black Latino, like that's that's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. And so it's it was definitely a hard path, but, you know, at the time I was like, okay, well, somebody's got to do this. Mm-hmm. Might as well do it. I'm already Why doing it. Might as well keep doing it. Yeah. Yep. You know, go ahead and dig in. Dig in. If I'm going to do something, might as well do it well. Don't half-ass it, you yep. know, do it well, do it completely. And then, you know, set a path for somebody else to replicate it. Do it again. Was the support um, at NASA, uh, what, was it good support there? Or did you get a lot of, you know, like you're on your own kid or, or, fig, you know, figure it out? So I actually, I actually got to NASA. I just finished my one year at NASA. So this is in my line of work. When you finish your PhD, you get a postdoc. And so my first postdoc was actually in the biomedical engineering department. Um, so, yeah, I actually taught, <laughs> I taught biomedical engineering for about a year and a half. Biomedical after, engineering. After I finished an astrophysics PhD, you very unique path. Yeah, I was just um, about to ask. So, how does, how does yeah. do that? Does that correlate at all? No, it does. So it does. So my my degree is actually in physics. So it is. It's a physics degree. And so what I my I was tasked with in in my job role as a postdoc 
was to design a biophysics and computational mathematics courses in lab. And that's what I did. And then take that and apply it to their biomedical engineering curriculum. Um, and so I had to learn, brush up on my bio, brush up on my, my engineering real quick, mm -hmm. literally just overnight. So I can then teach it to these juniors and seniors that are coming up who Jeez. need this to graduate. Yeah, it was really fast. Um, but, you know, if you know the math, you know the science, the fundamentals, you can put, you can apply it. Okay. It'll just take a little minute, learn the vocab, some keywords or whatever. And then everything, it'll start picking up. And so that's what, that's what I did. You know, by the end of it, I was, I mean, you can ask me about a bunch of stuff in biomedical engineering and anatomy and physiology. I'll probably answer those questions. Um, awesome. That's crazy, man. Yeah, it's kind of that's dope. That's, that's phenomenal. Good. I say phenomenal. That's not crazy. That's phenomenal. That's, that's I think it's crazy. Cool. Just bounce like that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's that's what I did. And so next postdoc after that, I was in the DOD. So I was at the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Um, I worked on nuclear technology effects division. Uh, and the, the rest of that is literally classified. Can't tell you. Yeah, I was wondering, like, hey, he's not going to. Hey, got a kid. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, he's not going to say too much about that. He just hey, said, he you know me. Say I was like, I'm good. That, but that's... I don't want to know. I'm cool. It was a role. It was a role I had. It was actually pretty, pretty phenomenal. It was a really great job, actually. Um, and I got out of that. Um, and then I got to NASA. So I'm here now I'm doing, doing a lot of stuff at NASA. Uh, got my own research. Um, the DEI lead for the division I'm in, um, in another program also office out of NASA called Cosmic Origins. So we do a lot of stuff right now okay. um, on top of research. So, okay. so it's a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff, but it's hard work, but it's good work. But so that's what's important. The challenge. Good of work. It. Yeah. 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 As long as it is good work for you, you, you'll always have something to be involved in. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you always have a reason to get up and go do it. So that's a plus. And so one of the benefits, really, to that is that you know, as I move up in my career, I can do the same with the the students that I'm mentoring right now. So they'll reach out. I've been mentoring students for the last eight years. Okay. Every single one of them, if they've applied to grad school, they got in full rides. If they got jobs, they applied to. They got them. I mean, I'm making sure these students are set up. And are so, there a lot or is, is it like a small handful? I would say last eight years, I probably mentored about 25 or so students. Okay. And so, so like three a are, year or something. It, it averages about that. But these yeah. are some are ongoing for like the last eight years. Okay. I got one. I've been mentoring the last, I would say maybe six years I've been mentoring him. Um, he's at Georgia Tech right now doing awesome, awesome stuff. Yeah. Good. Um, and then there are some I'm still they they just keep hanging around because I'm doing something right. Do you do you think that physics should be something that can be taught to kids at a younger age around Absolutely. Like 10 or 11? Absolutely. I've done it myself. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Yeah. I've been I've seen programs like that. And that's the reason why I asked. I've seen them seen it happen. And you see the intellect of the kids go higher. Yep. And it's, it's like valuable. Yeah, like they can just they can spun they're a sponge, so they can soak it all up. So it's easier for them to learn it. And it seems like the, the older they get, that's when it becomes harder for them. But to yeah. watch certain kids that I've seen do it at a young age, it's it's so it's so awesome to see them doing it. 
they're not jaded yet. So mm-hmm. they're, they're able to exactly. actually absorb that information and actually apply it in different ways. Whereas when you get older, you start having opinions and you start joining echo chambers and having these discussions with people that maybe share similar views or have different outlooks on some of this science. And they kind of block out other avenues where they could actually learn some, you know, different takes, you know? 100%, 100%. I think, and, and it's, you really capture for, I guess for, for the way I teach, my methodology in teaching, um, you can really tap into some of their creativity as well. Yeah. These kids, they are phenomenal. And their their minds are just running at light speed. You can harness some of that creativity and match yeah. it to the math and science. Yeah. Limitless, They're going to huh? do something with it. Yeah. I think um, my observation, just because I'm really big into science and uh, I've always been a curious kid. You know, I grew up, you know what I'm saying, had probably the only kid in my neighborhood with like a a, a, a collegiate grade microscope in my house. <laughs> yeah. You know yep. I, I learned how to code little games on my computer and stuff like that when I was a kid, stuff like that. My dad kind of always fed that curiosity. But what I notice now is like a lot of people get a lot of their information from the Internet. They get a lot of their, you know. They don't necessarily read as much as they just take these little bits and pieces, these little clips, and they start forming these views, and then they start sharing this information with other yeah. people. And you get a lot of it, it. It becomes a loud, you know, echo chamber of just uh, misinformation. I'm not going to say false information, but more misinformation. People aren't necessarily informed on the stuff that they're talking about. And uh, I think what you're doing is absolutely amazing, and what you've done is absolutely amazing and, and impressive. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, just from my observation, you know. Yeah. And then it just, I mean, there's some, there is some false information out there. You know, you know, we got, we got people saying crazy stuff out there and they're, they're saying, yeah, this, this is what NASA does or this, you know, don't trust the textbooks. And I'm like, you know, look, (laughs) please please don't, please don't. A lot of the professionals, we're here for a reason. There's a lot of that. I noticed uh, yeah. I had this conversation with a guy maybe five nights ago. He was going on about uh, the earth being flat and stuff like that. And I was just listening to him. Just wanted, I wanted to hear his reasoning. His, you know, I'm not going to just shoot him down. Like, you're wrong. Get out of my face with this yeah. nonsense. We debunked that hundreds of years ago. No, I just want to hear why he thinks that. I asked him, how far have you ever traveled? Do you understand scale? Do you, you know what I'm saying? Things like that. Like, do you understand how small we are in the and you know, in, in the, the grand scheme right, of right. everything, yep. the universe, like yep. just the earth in general, like yeah. the, the size of the earth and how we look from a distance. Like you probably yeah. wouldn't even notice the curvature of the earth had nobody pointed it out to you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Stuff like that. If you live in an area where there's lots of hills, you're probably gonna have a different horizon than I would if I lived in a in a flat plains area, you know, stuff like that. And uh, he kind of, I could tell that as I asked more questions, he became more infuriated. So I just let it go. You know, I just wanted to see where, you know, where he got his information and how, why he felt so, you know, impassioned over it. But, but it's good. There's somebody out here that's doing the work. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm trying, combating the flat earthers out there. Flat (laughs) earthers, you know, if you're listening to this, sorry, the earth is round. The it's Earth weird. is round, man. It's like hey, they've been to space and they videos. showed pictures and videos from space stations that show the Earth 
it is not flat. Where you're we sitting may be flat, or you may think it's flat, but it's not, man. It's not I flat. I will say this, and you know, in the defense of anybody who doesn't necessarily believe, I will say this: we just so happen to live in a day and age, and I have friends who can do this, who can generate images on their computer that compare to damn near every and any and everything that you've ever seen from these agencies, right? Or even better, and a lot of the times, a lot of the videos and information that they they look at, that they 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 glean information from. It, it looks impressive to them strictly because you got people, content creators who can create these images and these, these mock-ups, you know? So they'll say, well, if that, if, if we can generate these images for video games and movies, why wouldn't they have the same technology to generate these images to feed us? You know? And these are like, I mean, it's a, to me, I was like, okay, I, I'll give you that. However, however, you work in a factory like me. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know what i'm saying so it's like sometimes you just gotta you gotta give these people grace you know just let, let them sometimes they gotta be wrong and let them be wrong or i won't even say wrong let them just live in their in their They're their own world and they and they sometimes i'll you know i'll be out and they approach me if i don't know how they figure out where i work or what i do and they and they'll approach and they'll ask questions like i feel like you're a scientist i'm like okay am i Given that energy, that's cool. And then they'll ask, you know, first they'll ask the other crazy question about aliens and all that. And I, uh -oh. I'm like, okay, all right, people. Uh oh. I'm just trying to get my apples. <laughs> I'm, taking milk. I'm trying to get out of here. But then, you know, it'll get to the flat earthers. I'll well, hear somebody arguing in the store. Yeah, the earth is flat. I've seen it. It's like, okay, yeah. yeah. Stay in your world. Just don't bring it over small. here. Don't bring it over here. Wearing a dome and all this. Yeah. Look, there's, there's all types of theories out there. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to use the live by the quote, you don't argue with a fool because when you're arguing with a fool, you can't tell who is who. When people walk by, they don't know who which one is who. They just see two people arguing, you know. Yeah. So to keep that from to keep myself from looking dumb, I just said I'm I'm just <laughs> I'm just not gonna do it. I'm just not gonna do it. If you feel that the earth is flat. That's fine. We create flat surfaces so people can drive and do things like that. Okay, yeah, we do do that. Bars so you can you can have a a, a, a solid balanced space so you can slide beers down and eat food and all that stuff. That's yeah. fine. But when you look at the overall orb, it is not a rectangle. It is not a square. Well, you got it's all not even a cube. It's it's no. A it's a sphere. It's a sphere. <laughs> You got to also consider this, though. Most people don't realize, you know, just on a metabolic metabolic level, what's happening within them. You know what I'm saying? They don't understand the science of their existence. All they know is like, I'm, I'm touching this. I'm touching that. No, you're not even touching it. You know, those those, uh, yeah. those molecules aren't even really making contact. They're, they're really not. They're just exchanging electrons and you're just That's experiencing it. it. That's exactly. it. So like if you take it from, you know, when 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 I when I introduce those types of ideas into the conversation, then they know they're out of their league because I'm, I'm they're they're free thinkers, but they're not necessarily taking in information that actually could enhance their own theories. Cause that, that's all everybody's absolutely doing now, yeah. theorizing on different things or just digging up old theories and trying to find truth in that. But it's frustrating, you know. It, it is. It, it, it is. 
<laughs> it honestly is. And today we're not we're not gonna do any of that. Tonight we're not gonna do any of that. Tonight we're gonna live we're gonna live in truth. All right, Doc. I have a I got I, we got plenty of questions for you. So I'm an open book. Let's go. All right, boom. So I was raised to believe that six 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 was something else, right? But along okay. along my journey, I found out something else. Atomic six is the makeup of six protons, six neutrons, six electrons, right? Mm-hmm. Is that carbon? That's carbon. That's carbon. Carbon produces melanin, right? Or is part of the elements of melanin? It, so melanin is, is what we would consider kind of like a macro molecule or a, a organic molecule, if you will. And mm-hmm. all most organic molecules are hydrocarbons. So they are carbon, hydrogen, and some oxygen, and maybe some nitrogen, and some other elements. They're chains right. of carbons in nitrogen and hydrogen atoms. And so melanin is just one of those macro or organic molecules where the base, ele- one of the base elements is carbon. So yeah, it, it's a carbon-based molecule. Um, so you need, you need carbon in everything. So everything. If you need it, if you, yeah. Everything. Life, you need carbon. For, the the for universe, the universe is, is, is subscribed of four elements, right? Carbon. Nitrogen, hydrogen, and oxygen, right? Oh no! No? Oh no! There's hundreds. Okay. Well, there's a well. Our periodic table, if you will, has about a hundred and hundred and eight. Okay. As of right now, about a hundred and eight, maybe a hundred and nine elements. Um, I would say roughly about eighty of those, or you see some elements in there. You see some some oxygen. You'll see hydrogen, helium, neon um copper iron okay gold it's it's all in there i heard there's also a planet that's made of diamond is that true i'm sure it's out there i haven't seen the pictures myself but i'm sure it's possible um diamond is just it's just carbon it's solid carbon and so you know you've got part of you can even look in our own solar system jupiter for example um, is, is theorized to have a solid or a metallic hydrogen core to it. Yeah. And so if you think about high, negative like 273 Celsius. So overall mass, so just, mass has condensed it down to a solid. All the, yeah, all that pressure, that gas that's sitting on top of that hydrogen core right. compressed it down to freeze, essentially. You get a solid. And so yeah. under all that pressure, you're going to get metallic hydrogen, which we know hydrogen is basically a proton. Yeah. Um, and so that thing's wild. So that's another reason why, you know, magnetic fields in space are very important. Mm, okay. um, and so that gives us another marker of, so some, some, you know, we got electrons they, they might be doing an electric slide out there for all we know or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but any movement is something that we can detect, right? Okay. If it's something like that, we can probably detect it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot more out there, especially in space. Okay. Um, and even some of the elements we have on Earth, they don't originate on Earth. Yeah. Um, some, they came from other extraterrestrial sources, comets, mm-hmm. asteroids. They came from the sun or the planets colliding 
yep. you know, a billion years ago when the planet was forming. So it's a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff out there. Okay. So is the moon, uh, I, I, I was reading it somewhere. I don't know if I'm going to get this right. So is the moon, <laughs> did the moon like clash, crash into another planet? And that, is that how it was produced? Is that the leftover? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that theory to the, the, the moon people at NASA. Okay. All right. <laughs> I know, I know there's, there's some, some competing theories out there that say that, well, you know, we've maybe earth collided with, um, Mars or something, for example, and the yeah. moon is just an offshoot of that. And it just collected more and more dust and rocks and became locked in the earth's gravity. And now it's circling around. Yeah. I was heard. I heard about that theory. So I was like, let me ask him if, if he would know anything about that. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're out, they're certainly out there. We just don't know enough to actually come out and say, yeah, the moon is a piece of earth from a billion years ago okay. um or maybe like 20 or so years ago that and it's it was in passing just doing some research and reading like because we we kind of have this we have this idea about how the moon as a satellite actually functions outside of earth in terms of like influencing our grab you know our gravitation mm-hmm. uh pull and the tides and stuff like that but what a lot of people don't know also is that we have another ma- massive body that circles the earth as well and it's like a, a chunk of asteroid that's been always out there, but we, we don't ever, we can't necessarily see it because where it sits and, and, you know, in that grand scheme, I guess, you know, like we, we can, if we knew exactly, if the average person knew where to look, we would probably notice it, but it would right. look like, you know, it looked like a speckle or a star in the sky, but it's, it's been circling the earth forever. Just as maybe as long as the, the moon. And it's been speculated that it may have even been a chunk of the moon at one point in time. Is this so there's yeah there's a bunch of things orbiting around the planets our planet's one of them right. um they come in and out they have these very very elongated orbits mm. so every once in a while we're gonna fly by and that's probably what you're seeing right. um you can see that if you have your own personal telescope you can probably see one of those as they fly by um and orbit they 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 orbit around. They come a little bit close, and you know, every once in a while, maybe once every two or three years, you'll see in the news, "Ooh, flyby happening!" Oh, this one's coming really close. Well, we knew about that because it's periodic. It's going to come back in another five years. It's absolutely orbiting us. It's just it has a yeah. wide, elongated orbit. It's got a really wide, low orbit, and there's a bunch of other things orbiting around too that are just they sometimes they crash into Earth, and yeah. you don't even realize it. You'll see shooting stars. Half of that is actually space junk, and then the other half are, are meteorites coming in, burning through the atmosphere. Right. Um, and There's so, always something. It's always something coming through. Yeah. Space junk. Are we littering? <laughs> are we littering in space, Doc? Now, okay. So this is <laughs> this is my NASA hat off, right? Uh-oh. This is a, okay. NASA hat off. NASA, if you're listening, I ain't speaking for the agency at this point. Yes, there's a lot of space junk out there. Okay. Space pollution is real. It's and it's becoming a problem to the point where we now have people. If you're operating a, a satellite, you now have people monitoring whether or not the satellite's going to collide with space junk. Jeez. And they have a gyro. They got joysticks to just tilt the satellite just a little bit to maneuver around the space junk. We've got so much up. And then yep. there's traffic as well. So 
Yeah, I was just about to ask. You got junk and traffic. Up in, there. in a realm of traffic or real estate, how many satellites are you are you able to say that? How many satellites are actually out I there? Mean, it's public information. It's it's up there. Um, I don't know. Actually, there's. So if you can imagine. Um, hmm. Imagine you taking like a. Uh, imagine you taking like a glass ball, if you will, right? Take mm-hmm. a glass ball, drop it on the floor, it shatters, right? And it shatters kind of like in a little little circle. And you see the individual pieces in there. Now imagine all of those are individual satellites around the Earth. Mm. That's how many are up there. There's a lot. It could be just around 100, maybe just low, over 100. It's, it's probably more than that. I think it's more than that. 2022? Yeah, I think it's, let's go, let's go, yeah, let's go 300 or more. This is why I'm thinking. I might, might put it up to 500. Yeah. My thought process on it is like this, because um, you think about all the commercial satellites that are up there. You know, you have your your government uh, agency satellites. You have your, uh, you know, they, they serve all these different purposes. And you have, and then that's just, let's say, just continental U.S. And you have the other nations that are involved in, you know, in this space race, as we, whatever we want to call it. You know, you got, you know, China's pretty advanced, Russia's pretty advanced. I don't know what other nations have actually joined us in this and have actually succeeded in actually being, a, a you know, making a footprint in this. Mm-hmm. But I would, I would imagine that corporations are way more invested than nations are in that way because they have the. the yeah. Deep- and they're and they're up there and they're you've got, you know, if if we're talking just the, the U.S. alone, it might have 150, maybe 200 satellites up there by itself we're sending stuff up there all the time and then there are so your most satellites up there they're not the huge you know like hubble space telescope jwst size ones they're small cubesats Mm -hmm. and so the the communication satellites they're smaller Mm -hmm. and so verizon has some you know i don't know t-mobile got them they their coverage a little spotty there (laughs) yeah. <laughs> but uh they you know communication satellites are huge up there but yeah. is that a worry though like w- with all the space debris is that a worry like when we're doing launches for, for it space, is definitely something you have things. to consider so you have to time your your launches correctly you gotta you gotta be in the right orbit you have to launch from the, the right uh you know lat and longitude from earth so you can't launch just from anywhere I can't launch a satellite out of my backyard. Um, and so you have to really be strategic and tactful when you launch, what time you launch, the season, who you're launching with. Um, and then, well, where is it going? Where is it going? And then where is it going to actually end up? Because we can calculate the math up to a, you know, a certain degree, but we're still going to be off. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be exact. It's not going to be 100% exact. There's going to be some percent error. We're human. We built it, and we're going to launch it up there. There's going to be some errors. Yeah, I mean, we're still um, pretty young in it anyway. If you really look at it from a, you know, in the, just a logistics. We've only been yeah, we've only been doing space travel for sixty years now. So mm. yeah, yeah, we now we haven't even hit hundred years yet. It's only so, been sixty years. About sixty. Jeez. And you take into account like we've really just gotten. I mean, we haven't even gotten entrenched in complete safe space travel where we can take things up there and actually build upon what we've already done we're still mastering that aspect of it so it's still kind of 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's impressive though, you know. Very, it's very impressive. And if you think if you go back to, you know, the Apollo missions back in the 60s and stuff, they put Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, um, um, you know, when they first touched on the moon, you're looking at you're not even looking at computer chips sending them up. You're you're looking at maybe you might have some silicone chips, but they're not the chips that it's in your phone. You have more technology in your phone than the space shuttle did when it went up, um, even in the 80s, even in the rockets, the Apollo missions that went up in the 60s, you got more technology in your phone than that. And that went up with enough, you can probably use AA batteries to power that rocket. Jeez, as far as the electronics don't say that, man. Don't say as that. As far as the electronics go, yeah. That's fucking, batteries. that's dangerous. But it worked. It was efficient. It was efficient. Now, that's not talking propulsion, obviously. Right. But if we're talking powering onboard computers and stuff like that, yeah. Okay. They so, were real simple back then. My Push question button. is because everything was bigger back then, you know. Mm-hmm. So we're talking computers, we're talking all of the uh, uh, data capturing uh, materials, everything mm-hmm. bigger and heavier. How many people were a part of that actual uh, mission to the moon? Who stayed on the and orbited the moon while the lander landed? I don't. I'm not sure how that worked out because I don't remember the. You had so. So really, you had you had a you had a team of three that was in the capsule, um, that actually left Earth. You had a team of three. Mm-hmm. Two went down. That's Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, um, and you had a third one. Don't let me mess up his name. Gus Grissom, I believe. Okay. He was the one that stayed up, right? Um, in orbit. In the the or you had an orbiting capsule, and then you had one that actually landed. Yeah. So there was a mission, a team of three. Now, I cannot mention those three without mentioning the like hundred plus team members down at NASA on Earth. So they did. I'm talking to Catherine Johnsons, the Mary Jacksons. Yeah, all of them. They put them up in the space. So the actually ones. They were the ones that actually got them there. Um, and so you can think of the guys who, they definitely did their jobs. Nothing, you know, hats off to them, because that was definitely a dangerous mission mm-hmm. to be the first. Um, but you got to give, you got to give evil credit, equal credit to the guys who landed, the guy who was manning the orbiter, um, and then the team that was down. That helped them get to the, absolutely. Canaveral, yeah, and NASA, that actually got them up there safely. Or that they got them back. That's the hardest part, getting back. Because that's the hardest part. And the 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 lunar lander, get the lunar lander back to the the capsule and get that capsule. That's a lot of math. Yeah, it. I mean, it is. And at the time, we didn't we didn't really have, um, we didn't really have some of the a graph on the mathematics as we do now, right? So SpaceX, they can calculate some stuff. Um, you know, we can use a bunch of fancy computers, supercomputers we're using to send people up into space. They didn't have that back then. They were calculating stuff by hand. Yep. And so you had to be real quick with it. So that is, you know, when, when the, the old heads or whatever, your, your grandparents, they talk about abacus they use, slide rulers, you know, before we had calculators, they were using that. To calculate trajectories, yeah. stones, and <laughs> angles, you know, cover all the degrees, the geometry, yeah. Pythagorean theorem, it came back again. On a chart. So, 
Exactly. <laughs> so, right, and on chalk. So you you know you couldn't couldn't mess anything up. You had to know know yeah. it down to like the eighth decimal place. So ooh. So explain for those who are listening and myself why yeah. was it so hard for them to get back to Earth from the from from the moon? Um, it was it was really the the unknown, right? So you can calculate. You can do your calculations going there. Going there is easy. You send your rocket up, you keep pushing, you keep pushing, you got fuel, right? You got this big old rocket, you can blast it off into space. But how are you getting back? You have to conserve enough fuel and you have to be light enough to actually use that fuel efficiently mm. in space to get back. You don't have a large rocket anymore. You got this small capsule and you need to maneuver that strategically in space. So what they really do is they use... Uh, some they used, they had a combination of, of liquid fuel and gas. Um, and so in space, you had the advantage of zero friction. So once you push something in space, it's going to keep going unless you slow it down. You have to force it in the opposite direction to slow it down. And so once you accelerate from the moon, at that point, you're just waiting to hit Earth. So I got a question about that. Because yeah, go ahead. I had with a couple buddies a couple months ago we were talking about the vacuum of space because you just said there's no friction in space mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how does that work though because like uh i've done some uh some uh zero friction vacuum container type experiments when i was in high school and uh things would not budge in the vacuum yeah you know like you can you can you can bust open a sprite can in a vacuum and it'll it'll burst but the can will kind of sit there the only thing but the difference is is because it's still under the influence of the local gravity it's just the gravity is outside of that chamber but i was wondering like how does that gas or that propulsion actually work in the vacuum of space how does one actually create that to get that to influence that that movement because we've seen it in movies where somebody will bump somebody out in space and all of a sudden they're floating off into the void but that's not how that will work i don't i would imagine it but, works exactly the same way. There's nothing to stop you. But I'm saying, like, if I like, if we if we were both, if if you push against me with uh-huh. this force, we would move apart at equal force because there's nothing stopping. I'm not stopping you, no matter how much I want to stop you from pushing me. We both will just do like this and just float apart, right? Yeah, that's granted back in the space. So wouldn't that? That's what I'm, I'm trying to understand because that's physical contact. But with gas, how would that work? If we're using gas or or fuel in general to kind of generate that type of force, what is that pushing against? What is that? So, and I'll, I'll use this example right here, right? So you're, so I'm assuming you're in a chair with wheels, right? Yep. Okay. So then push off your desk. All right. I, I get that part. So but, now, but I'm pushing. You're not desk. Right. But right. but the desk is also pushing against you. Yeah. So you're only moving backwards because you exerted more force against the desk than the desk exerted force on you. Absolutely. Your net direction is going backwards. Right. So now if you replace your chair with rocket and replace the desk with fuel, then you have propulsion in space. And what really happens is is we have some type of ignition process, right? You got to spark up this plasma fuel to push us, the fuel. You got to ignite the fuel. But the fuel is actually 
um, excited particles. So if you have trillions and trillions of excited particles pushing against, against this chamber that is now only open to one side, I got you. The gas has to escape only to one side. And so it's going to push against That's the rest of the rocket and push you forward. Object in the force. I got you. So that's that's how we're using propulsion in space, right? right? And so it's really controlling the direction of how that gas comes out. Yep. How does that gas come out? Determines the direction and the speed that you're going. And so it's it's actually really simple. The hard part is. Well, how much fuel do you need? Mm. How much fuel can you spend on one burst, right? How many bursts can you do? All right. Um, well, how long are each one of these bursts? So now, now it becomes a little bit more complicated when you're talking about fuel economy. Yeah. Um, but the type of fuel, you know, we can, if we can slap 16 Dragon rockets on a one shuttle and blast it off to Mars, we could probably get there tomorrow. Mm. <laughs> but it then, all right, well, how are you getting back? Right. If you don't have the dragon rockets, it's going to take you eight months or so. So maybe eight months, depending on, you know, if you're just using maybe a little jet pack or something like the Jetsons, it's going to take you eight years. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, because you, what you said made perfect sense. I just, the way you described it is the way I thought it worked. Yep conversations i've been having a lot of you know again people who don't necessarily have the the background you have so we kind of have have to work with what we have but what I'm, I'm imagining is that that propulsion is way simpler than the propulsion of a, a plane here on earth because of all the friction that the plane is going against you know with the air the the the, the wind blowing the, the actual fuel that is that it's using and but the only difference is that it's a shorter distance between Los Angeles and New York versus Cape Canaveral and the moon. <laughs> you mean the distance, yeah. Yeah, so that, that but, the, but the simplification of it, I'm, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but there's like the, the, yeah. out, the, the friction aspect of it is what differentiates what people's concept of how that works is. No, so, yeah, so jet fuel is, um, so if we're talking like, you know, 737 jets, yeah. You're maybe looking at something like hydrazine. So hydrazine is basically the, the molecular name for um, jet fuel. Right. Um, they used to use hydrazine in the space shuttle. So the same fuel you might see on, you know, some of these, um, these like F-22 jets and the F-16, the jet Air Force jets, right? The same fuel you might see in, in the space shuttle back then. Now we've got, we've got some significant advancements in jet uh, or rocket fuel, I should say, right? So space travel. Um, and so we use a combination of liquid fuel and there are some other fuels that if you start with liquid, liquid fuel, you can then transition to something else called ionic propulsion. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you've heard of Voyager 1, yep. Voyager 1 was one of the pioneering missions that used ionic propulsion you spark it up once it will just keep going mm. it just keeps going so voyager one you know it may not i don't it eventually it'll probably run out of fuel but as of right now it's chugging along it's accelerating yeah. mm. um is that the one that actually discovered the uh the Oort cloud yep that's the one it's it's far beyond our solar system now it's yeah. officially left home <laughs> yeah. um but yeah so 
you know, these SpaceX, Blue Horizon, Virgin Galactic, and so there's some others, you know, out there, they use alternative fuels um, other than what's in our commercial jets. So sure. we really can't use that type of fuel in the commercial jets because it's way too volatile. Yeah. One Sounds like I would think so. It goes up. It yeah. Goes up. yeah. Yeah. Even, you know, if a bird gets caught in the, the turbines, it's over. Mm. It's gone. It's that volatile. So that's why, you know, the, there's fuel that we use to get off planet. And then there's fuel that we actually use in space. Those are two different types of fuels. I um, think so. Yeah. And so, you know, your jet plane, you flying on Delta, American, Southwest, whatever. It's, it's a little bit simpler, I should say, from a fuel standpoint. Of course, you have to deal with air, you know, weather, air resistance, all that. Um, but, and if you're combining all of those things, it is a little bit more complicated than just setting up a rocket straight up, right? right? We just need to make sure it just leaves Earth and yeah. not circle back. What is the speed that you have to, what is the speed that they have to actually achieve to leave, to leave Earth, to get through the atmosphere? Um, oh, man. You gonna ask the numbers? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's the escape velocity of mm. Earth. Yep. Uh, let me see this right off the cuff. So, man, I can write the equation down for you. What is it? Square root of gm over c squared, something like that, is escape velocity. You would um, know better than I would, sir. Yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking out loud. So you're looking at. You have to be true. You have to be accelerating. I will say this to put it in terms or numbers that you, you already know, of, right? So G 9.8 meters per second squared. We already know that you got to be accelerating faster than that to leave Earth. Okay. to escape Earth's gravity. You have to be accelerating faster than that. So, so when you, you say that, when you say G, then, so then they're moving at G's then. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, so is it, is it faster than nine? It's you have to be, yeah, you have to, and, and it's an exact number too. Okay. They have to be moving. If you're accelerating at 10 meters per second squared, you have to confirm breaking the, the gravi gravitational hold because if you don't, you, you you're going to come back down. Because back the gravitational hold is so strong. Yep. It's because yeah. of the mass of the earth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you're looking at 10 to the 23 kilograms for the mass of the earth. Yeah. So you gotta go at least twenty, just to at yeah. least at least ten to the twenty. Like you're, it's it's pretty big compared to a person or a rocket. Even a rocket's wow, several hundred That's times. Why athletes who 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 leap have bad knees? They gotta come back down. They gotta come back down. <laughs> and I know that <laughs> from being a guy who's only five foot eight and could jump up and dunk the ball. When I come down, my knees would ache, man. Yeah. You're jumping up high, too. Oh, ah. <laughs> if someone would have told me what I was doing when I was younger, I would have stopped. <laughs> I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it. I would have been smacking the backboard, jumping up, dunking the ball. I wouldn't have done none of that stuff. I would have chilled out. Look, I, I've, I was jumping off of two-story buildings and down the stairs when I was a kid. I might have a shot. Yeah, man. I, I should love that, jumping on the mattresses, <laughs> doing flips and all that stuff. But. Yep, yep. When you're on those courts and you're playing basketball, it's a totally different thing when you come down on those two. On, your two on that, that hard concrete. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. My next question for you is this, Doc. 
is space flat? That's a really good question. You want the long answer? Let's do it. Let's do it. Give me what you got, man. Come on. All right. Okay. So long answer, no. Okay. Long answer, no. And I will say that you have to, you got to then do kind of like a deep dive into um, like Einstein's general relativity. So we're talking space, we're talking space time now, right? So we're talking 4D space time, X, Y, Z and time, 4D. Um, it, is, it is not flat only okay. because we know that the, um, we know that the universe is accelerating, right? It's mm -hmm. expanding, mm -hmm. but we know that that expansion is accelerating. Um, and so because we know it's accelerating, we know that there's some type of energy, right? There's some type of mass energy there to perpetuate that acceleration. Cool, right? F equals MA, we know Newton's laws, it's all there. So if there's mass, then there's energy. If there's energy, then space-time itself is curved. Okay. That got simple. you. Got you. That simple. That's how we. It's that simple. That's why we perceive time the way we do. That's exact. So your the satellites, your GPS works right. because of relativity. Gotcha. You can thank Einstein for your GPS on your phone. Gotcha. Well, they would they would say we are being spied on by GPS, but you know. Yeah, I mean, you know. I got a question. Mm -hmm. so what's your what is your understanding? I won't even use the term understand. What's your take on the Fermi paradox and how it applies to what we know currently? Man, I haven't gotten this question in a while. Um Man, that's a really hard question, actually. Um, okay, so actually, I would, so that I'm not, so that I'm not giving you a bunch of jargon, I'm going to ask you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because this could, this could go way. Yeah, up. the fact that he this had to stop the pause, I was like, oh, this could go way We got here to ask you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this could go way up. Okay, so I, when I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface this with a question. I'm going to answer your question with a question. What is your take on the Fermi paradox? I want to know that first before I answer your question. My take on the Fermi paradox is that we are far more primitive than advanced and we have an understanding strictly based on our own dreams and hopes. So a lot of what we do is we speculate based on the evidence that we've already had before us and then we apply that to what we see in front of us. So my idea of the Fermi paradox is, well, if we're able to do this I could only imagine what another advanced species, because we consider ourselves pretty advanced, right. another advanced species is capable of. And if that is the case, then why haven't they reached out to us or do they even know we exist? But okay. no, yeah, go ahead. The other side of that is we're not as advanced as we think we are. And we might be the most advanced ever because we are, we're the only thing out here. That's the paradox. Okay, so then I would, I would say then, to answer your question, what's my take on the Fermi paradox? Um, I would say that it is, I think we should, I think we should approach it differently. I think we should, um, 
my my opinion on this um and so okay so i'm taking off my nasa hat here <laughs> i'm taking, right. I'm taking off my nasa hat here because he come back hey ron you were talking about fermi paradox in the pot like, did i yeah okay is that a problem <laughs> yeah um but yeah so i would i would say that it is i i don't believe that we are the i don't believe that we are the only possible life forms out here and i say possible because there's an unknown as to whether or not if there is other life out there, right? Whether or not it is advanced. Right. So it could be molecular life. It could be bacteria. Yep. It could be melanin floating out in space. Yep. And if that's the case, then price is going up because that means I'm cosmic out here. I'm actually black. <laughs> like, if we buy hey, melanin bro. in space, hey, price man. is going up. Y'all hey, <laughs> can't touch me. But um, not. Nah, <laughs> I think it's. I think there's a there's a lot of. I think there's a lot of information out there, and I think for for us to be so unique, there has to be another occurrence. Whether or not we are meant to find that is another question. Right. Um, but I don't believe because we are so unique that makes us solitary. Um, and so what does that look like? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. Um, Wouldn't that be kind of depressing to know that we're the only ones? It kind of would be. Cause then it's, you know, we're sending a whole bunch of stuff in space. And if, if that's the case, then we're not going to get any answers back. Yeah. But, you know. What that does is it creates a confirmation bias for those who are like heavily religious because it makes it seem like we are the chosen ones. However, I'm like very, very, into like octopi so i study like the, the life of an octopus and I, I look at the way they they function and they're probably one of the most advanced species of creature on our planet if they oh. could if they could exist out of water they would probably dominate us because they're highly mm -hmm. intelligent they just we just don't understand them as well as we think we do i watched one in a jar get itself out of a jar <laughs> with a yep. lid screwed on tight you know, it, it tinkered with the lid a little bit and opened it up. Yeah, and screwed it. You know, the 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 abilities of an octopus. Uh, you know, the the things they can do with its its color and its texture and blend in and camouflage. So it's like we don't again, like you said earlier, how a lot of what we have as far as elements and things like that uh, aren't necessarily native to our planet. We there are so many questions to be answered about just life on our planet so right. i would imagine that there's something out there i know? mean exactly exactly our understanding of it is just where where the gap is because we're yeah. still learning yep yep and i'm you know octopi or um what is he i'm not a zoologist i think they're called arthropods yeah grouping like squid and other octopi in there they're between oct octopi dolphins and primates you're looking at the three most advanced brains on the planet. Mm -hmm. And so, but then at the same time, you know, going to your, your, your jar example and what you observed, I've seen, I've seen a similar situation like that too. Nature's going to find a way. Always. Nature's always going to find a way. Yes. So 
if there's something else out there, I'm sure nature found a way somehow, some way nature found a way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the same time, nature will also find a way to conceal itself as well. And so to hide itself for protection. And so that may also be the case as well. There's a lot of organisms in the bottom of the ocean that are unmapped. They're, they're unknown because they're hiding. They don't want to they don't want to be found. It's dangerous to them. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the, the back end for, for what I'm my opinion on the Fermi paradox and, you know, whether there's life out there, if there is life out there and we haven't found it yet, we need to answer the question, okay, does it want to be found in the first place? Mm. Or, or will we have the advanced mind to even acknowledge that it exists how, if it was- How can, yeah, how can we perceive in that? In front of us, yeah, how do we, how do we recognize it? They, yeah. I was told that your brain only processes what it, processes what it knows and it makes, it makes, uh, a general observation for everything else. So like if you like with a child, if a child doesn't know what some, something is, it investigates it, mm-hmm. you know, it'll pick it up if it can, or it'll walk around it and try to see what is this thing? Where, yeah. where like if it's bigger than life, if it's larger than life, it's some, something we've never seen before. Fortunately for us, we live in a day and time where everybody's got a cell phone now, but just imagine in a day and age where nobody had these things to actually record this information, what they're, observations even were and it might have been right there in front of their face and it might be in our faces now it, i'm sure of it i'm sure it's there and i'm and i'm you know i would trust the the observations from like a thousand years ago than today because you can everybody mm. you can fake an instagram video that's exactly. true you can do that from your phone we got apps now it goes right back to what i was saying about the uh the generating images and things like that we have we are more advanced than we've ever been technologically so because of that we take a lazy approach to actually just doing having discernment and actually picking things apart and being more critical in our thinking on these things you know what i'm saying so that's why people question more than they actually accept the answer for you know when it comes to something like the fermi paradox you know I, I mean, I'm, I'm always open to all of the information because I don't know. I'm, I'm you're, you're way more <laughs> informed than I am. You Doc, know, we I, have these type of conversations from time to time. Just so I've you got know. millions it's, of questions, but that's, that's all right. You, <laughs> I have my me and my brother. We we go on riffs as well. We'd be talking for an hour. It's just we do this, man. <laughs> <laughs> Doc, we sit around all the time and we all do this. It's like, dude, we right. don't know. Right. That's yeah. why like, this is a treat for me. You know hearing it from from you and actually getting a, a an informed perspective you know yeah i mean i i would hope that we aren't the only ones All right i hope that but you know there's just it's i'm looking at the size of the universe it's we're looking at 14.7 billion light years across and the james kind of changed our scope on what we understood before you know and and that's only Five percent of what we've seen. Yeah, it's only five. We've only seen. We've only observed five percent. Right now, (laughs) you know. Remember, five percent. That's nothing. Oh, and I had a conversation before, and uh, we were talking about like the direction in which we look into space, and the direction or the tilt of our our galaxy. You know what I'm saying? All of these different things, the way they factor in, because you said that Earth isn't flat. I mean, not you said the Earth isn't flat. You said the universe isn't flat. Yeah. So if I were to look up, up isn't necessarily <laughs> up. You know what I'm saying? 
in the grand. Yeah, school. well, no, it's it's just out. It's out. Yeah. So it's out. So if I were in uh, Australia, my my purview would, would grant me a different perspective, and I would still be looking out because even their up is up to them, but it's just out. Yeah. And so that's that's when we in astronomy we differentiate between the northern and the southern sky. So we're really using the equator or, or, or a, a celestial plane, if you will. We actually call it a celestial plane. Um, and the equator is kind of like 23 degrees off axis from that celestial plane. That's the tilt of the earth, it's about 23.5 degrees, um, 23.6 if you're, if you're working at NASA, you better say 23.6. Oh. <laughs> um, Has but that it's, changed over the years? No, nah. no. Okay. No, nah, it's we we know it's been like that for for as long as we've been, been like that for as long as the Earth's been here. I'm sure okay. something tilted it, but ever since then, it's it's not it's not going to change. Okay. Um, you may get what's called a, an orbital wobble, so yeah. it may wobble based off of you know things. And the Earth itself isn't it's not a perfect sphere. It's an oblate. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it bulges at the equator. Yeah, it's wider at the center. Okay. Because yeah, it rotates. So I have another question and I'll, I'll leave it to, oh, issue. All right. <laughs> Why is it no matter the time of day, you can see the moon? Because the moon actually, the moon actually cycles around, the, it actually rotates around the earth, revolves around the or earth or orbits, I should say. Let me use correct terms. It orbits around the earth twice. All right. So it'll, it'll do that cycle twice in 24 hours or 23 hours. I just wanted you to say it because- Some odd minutes, yeah. <laughs> You've probably heard that before. Don't get that. Yeah. <laughs> 23 hours, is it 23 hours and 54 minutes or something? Because it's not an actual 24 hours, Yeah, right? it's not exactly, yeah. it's not That's exactly 24 crazy. hours. And that kind of has to deal with the tilt and you know the, the revolution of the earth around the sun and some other things. Bunch of math in there. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's 23 hours, about 54 minutes. So we're really six minutes off. Um, and, you know, if you really want to do the math, you can probably figure out why we have leap year. Yep. What would happen if we, if we were to move faster than the speed of light, like a rocket or something, what would happen? It'd be dark. It'd be completely black. Okay. I would assume. Because you are then at that point, you are moving faster than light can reflect off of a surface for you to observe. So if there's if you, you're moving faster than that, then you got no light. And if you move at um, the speed of light, then it, everything would be bright. <clears throat> that's what not, I would not necessarily. Okay. <laughs> that's another, that's kind of another paradox. Not necessarily. It may still be dark or you would just see everything would be frozen, really. All right, thanks. For if saying. I'm taking a mathematical standpoint, everything would just be frozen in time. Okay. Um, and you'd really just see a still image. Even you yourself would be still. Um, because at that point, space and time have equal footing and they're all traveling at the same rate. They're right. all traversing. You're traversing space and time at the same rate at that point. And so... But I would be ahead of it though, right? So I'm looking back at everything. Not if you're traveling at the speed of light. Okay, okay. If you're traveling faster than the speed of light, 
then you're actually moving faster than time can traverse. Correct. That's what I'm saying. You're looking, you're able to look back and see everything that's happening around. But if you then look back, you may not see anything. Oh, because there's, if you, depending on how much faster than the speed of light you are, you may, there may not be enough time for the light to reflect off of something for you to see. So that at that point, you, you're out there, you, you doing something else because you're, like you're moving faster five, than light can travel. Type five being now. <laughs> like, you know. Okay. okay. <laughs> Six, you got any more questions, man? Because this is something I can listen to him talk like all day. Like, this is. All right. All right. I'll, this, I'll just throw this out there. What do you think of, uh, because we, we people always talk about uh, time travel. And I, I have my, my thoughts about that. I feel like there's time travel is not as impressive or important of a concept to me as like interdimensional existence. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because you, you mentioned the fourth dimension, you know, um, and we, we always talk about uh, the afterlife and blah, 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 all of these different things that we kind of fantasize about. I would imagine that uh, because time, because time, in my opinion, can't be linear because too many experiences have been either bypassed or actually accepted. So there's always that opportunity for that other, that other you to have done the other thing. You know what I'm saying? In a, yeah. in a parallel universe. So what is your, what, how does that factor into like our concept of how the, four, the, the, the dimensions actually work? The, you know, you have the space time. We have, um, I, I'm, I'm thinking like the way we view things, the way our, our view of how life actually exists. How does that even... Yeah, you can think of it as, let me not use, let me not use the, like the professional jargon here. You can think of it as like the, uh, um, think of it as a, a cube, right? Yep. You got a cube, okay. Um, and now think, all right, so a cube, it exists X, Y, Z, 3D. Yep. Sure, we, we got that. Cube, you Cubes the same as your hat, as the headphones, as the pillows behind you. It's the same, right? 3D. Now think, all right, I have one cube. If I then want to describe that same cube in 4D, I would need another instance of that cube. Mm -hmm. And so now it's really the same cube, but you have one cube existing at one point in time and another cube existing at another point in time. And so if I keep doing that, I will then populate a fourth dimension. Yeah. And if I then say, all right, well, if there's no space in between each event that I have now, then they overlap. Yep. And so now I have an overlap of cubes that exist in the same point in space, different points in time. Yep. And so I have what's called a hypercube that exists in 4D. Okay. So... You can think of this as something like a tesseract. We've the word tesseract's been thrown around since the Avengers came out. <laughs> it's, <yeah>. it's <laughs> it has, and it's when it first came out, it's like, oh, that's where you're going. All right. Or a Mobius strip or something. Yeah. Mobius strip, and everybody's like, yeah, you know, they're doing memes about Mobius strips now. I'm like, yeah, oh, that's yeah. not the way it works, man. Yeah, that's know, not the work. Yeah. <laughs> that's not but, the way uh, it works. But you can if you use that analogy, right? That's, that's 4D in a nutshell. That is 4D space time in a nutshell. 
you are no longer looking at positions, you're looking at locations of events. So each point in 4D space-time is an event now, instead of an XYZ position, right? Right. Um, And then we, you can attach Cartesian, I'm getting into math now, Cartesian coordinates, geometry lesson, in case y'all don't remember y'all's coordinate systems here. I don't. I know, I know exactly what you're talking the, about. The Cartesian, you know, the cubic ones, you have spherical radius and both uh, angular directions. Those can be in 4D as well. So R, theta, phi, T, you can have them all. Cylindrical, oblate, spheroidal. Yep. Um, in grad school, I had to come up, I used a um, coordinate system. I used a coordinate system that was... Um, it was called hyperbolic oblate spheroidal coordinates in 4D. And it was, the math was crazy. So it operated, like it. it operated the same way as if you had a cube. It's just operated the same way. And so that's how we know that, okay, so the math is mathing, right? And <laughs> we, can, we can figure some stuff out. <laughs> This is why I kind of lean more into the interdimensional thing than I do the the actual time travel aspect of it. People talk so heavily about the time travel aspect of it because I think, um, you know, let's say we we try, let's say we just explored the concept of here on Earth. Uh, somebody decided they want to time travel. There are so many different things to factor in, and there would be no going back in time. You could probably jump forward, but then you have to you have to consider like what what the coordinates would be where you would actually arrive where the earth actually would be in that rotational setup. I mean, I, that's what I would imagine. I think that like, because the earth is constantly spinning, it's, it's tilting, it's, it's rotating. And you want to <laughs> jump, you want to jump 50 years in the future. Where would, where would, what, the, what would that look like 50 years in the future? It'd you know? be in the same location, 50, just 50 years in the future. But wouldn't you have to get the, the math right? Or you'd be like, oh, of course. Oh, oh, that, that's you might end up in the ocean, right? You got look, yeah, in a void of space, <laughs> you know. And, and you're trusting that the earth is still here in 50 years, yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. don't forget oh, about exactly. that. But yeah. now, if we're talking the if we're talking the philosophy of time travel, right? It is almost impossible for you to access a future that never existed yet. Right. Mm. So we can actually travel. It's easier to travel back in time. Conceptually. Because yeah. that, conceptually, that's yeah. already existed. That information already existed. So but, I could theoretically access it again. Yeah. But I can't jump forward to access information and a seen. specific configuration of information that hasn't existed yet. But jumping back in time, you would create just your existence and the technology you would use would create so such a paradox that you would affect everything you left behind to get there. So that's why I say what I said. <laughs> that's, I mean, yeah, if you're talk, going back and you're talking to people, then yeah, you're probably going to mess something up. Or Butterfly effect. Leave something. <laughs> don't leave anything. Don't leave a pen. Don't leave your phone behind. Yeah. You can't even go back. A picture. You know, if you have an iPhone 13 and you go can't back five it. years, even that's tragic. You that's can't, can't leave it. Yeah. Yeah, five got- years ago, we talking 2017. We had 13s back then. Nah, man. So look, and you got a phone with all these cameras on the back? Nah. <laughs> look at you crazy. <laughs> all 
All right, gents, are you guys okay if I take a break real quick? Sure, right. sure, sure. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a break. All right, we're back. We had to take a little break. I've been sitting on too many beers. Um, it's pretty good that I, what I'm drinking is called Dissident, for those who don't know what it is, as a cherry flavor, and it was soaked in an oak barrel. So it's really good. Uh, anyway, Doc. Yes, sir. Is space really black or does it have a dark green tint to it? <laughs> space is, I mean, it's black. It's if black. there's nothing there, it's black. Okay. Black just means that it's, a, it's just, it's not reflecting any light or um, it's absor- absorbing all the light. So, okay. you know, something can be, something can be black and it can be opaque. So, if you've seen, what's the color? Vanta Black is a great example on Earth. So if you Google Vanta Black, it's literally the blackest substance you can have on the planet. It's mm. it looks like a it looks like a sci-fi effect, but it's real. It's a it's a real material. It's a real okay. color. But Vanta Black, it's black. It's black, black, blackly black, black, black. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. It's, My, yeah, it when is. you say okay, so opaque is the sun opaque? Um, I would say yes. Okay, yeah. the sun is opaque simply because you can't see through, right? So no matter what spectrum of light you're looking in, radio, X-ray, gamma, we can't see through it. It's opaque. We call that a black body in astronomy. Black body just means it absorbs certain. Uh, spectra of light and then it only emits discrete ones right so okay. the sun emits all of them but other stars other planets they're black bodies and they don't emit all they don't emit all the spectra mm. so you may get stars that only emit radio or x-rays or gamma rays and no visible no uv no infrared no microwave um, and so they're opaque to those bands okay you know Speaking on gamma rays, all right, we hear the com- <laughs> we hear about the, the comic books and everything. Gamma rays at any level would pretty much just kill us, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It'd melt your insides. Jesus, man. Even like the <laughs> smallest fleck of one, right? Small, smallest one. Probably give you cancer. Okay, okay. Now, explain. We, exp- so, so let me explain. Yeah, yeah let, just let explain, explain, explain it. Explain it. Explain it. So... When you're out in the sun, you get a little tan, you know, black, some black people tan. But if you get your little tan, you know, black on crack, right? But you're, you're actually absorbing visible and UV rays, right? Mm. So you'll get darker in the summertime because you're absorbing more and more UV rays, which then creates, you're getting more vitamin D, the melanin in your skin gets a little bit more concentrated, you get darker. Okay, so now, but that only hits like surface level, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not really penetrating that far. If we're talking infrared rays, that's even penetrating even, even less. So when you feel heat from something, you're actually feeling infrared rays, heat, right? Your microwave, when you heat up food, those are microwaves, those come from the sun, but they are mostly blocked because of the ozone layer. Mm-hmm. Thank God we still have some ozone there. If we didn't, we'd be cooked. I tried to tell this guy that, but you know, never we'd be mind. cooked. 
<laughs> that that we maybe episode number two. <laughs> <laughs> we'd be we'd be cooked. But uh microwaves kind of penetrate a little bit further down, right? So they they really hit on a little bit. That's why we can heat up chicken very well in the my in our home appliances. Now, but if we're going past UV, right? Um if we're going past UV into X-ray, X-rays penetrate the body down to only the densest part, and then they reflect back. Mm-hmm. That's why you can see your skeletal structure for x-rays, mm-hmm. right? The x-rays penetrate down, down to the bone. They hit calcium. It's really calcium carbonate. That's what your bones are made out of. And then they reflect back because it's too dense to go through. Gamma rays, for example, right? They are on, so x-rays are on kind of like a, a atomic and molecular level, right? So X-rays will scatter off of electrons mm-hmm. and other atoms. Gamma rays, <laughs> they will scatter off of electrons and subatomic particles, neutrons, protons, quarks, oh, wow. whatever. So they pick and it so all up. Them, them jokers will pass right through you. Yep. You don't want those to pass through you because now they're hitting something inside of you on the atomic level, wow. which means... The most abundant element in your body is carbon. If I break one carbon in one chain, there goes all your melanin in your skin, and now your skin's just melting off. It'll just fall off. Jeez. It's a side effect. If you stay, you know, if you get exposed to gamma rays for, for that long, you will be cooked from the inside out within minutes. So it is, it is not something people don't try to turn yourself into the Hulk. <laughs> it ain't gonna happen. These are comic books. You are going to die. A horrible you will death. die. You will die. A horrible. And it will be death. very painful. Yes. Very painful. All right. So the next thing for me: red, white, and blue. Okay. In science, red would be the warmest. White would be hot, and then blue would be the hottest. Is that true? It depends on what you're scaling it against. Okay. Right? So if we're talking suns, if we're talking stars. Okay, stars. A red sun is actually a pretty cold one. Yes. Pretty cold star. A blue star is actually pretty hot. Um, a white star. Kind, In the middle? It's kind, of, it's kind of, it's kind of rare. The, they, are, they are relatively hot, but they are not that big in size so a type of star that you might see that we that'd be called white is called a white dwarf so it's a it's a small compact star that's still relatively hot so we call them white dwarfs okay um there are other stars out there they're called brown dwarfs same thing but they're not they're very very cold right so they're they're like you know jupiter size and a little bit larger than that size stars they're really cold they're almost end stage. So they're about to die off. Mm. Um, and so you got a spectrum in between, you know, the red and the blue. Um, if you want to Google something, it's called the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. There's your technical term of the day. Hertzsprung-Russell <laughs> we diagram. Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. We're classifying the different classifications of stars based off temperature, size, age. It's got them all in there. And stars, they change based off of age and size and temperature, chemical composition and, and whatnot. 
Okay. Um, and so that's, that's your real scale. Now, if we're talking light, then, you know, reds and blues are different. Okay. How so? We're talking, we're talking optically. Red has a, has a longer wavelength of light, visible light now, right? So we're talking about the rainbow that's through a prism, the rainbow you might see after a storm, right? So those colors, um, you know, our crayon box colors, essentially. Okay. Red has a much longer wavelength, right? Blue has a shorter wavelength. Purple's even shorter than that. And so if you ever wanted to know why the sky was blue, that's why. Blue just has a shorter color, shorter wavelength than red light, so it scatters more frequently. Okay. That's it. That's why that's why the sky is blue. Kids, you learned something today. <laughs> Whoever's listening. So, I know I did. <laughs> I know I did. Six, you got anything else? Uh not really. He covered a whole lot. He said a lot, a lot of valuable information. Um I got nothing. You have nothing. All right. Dr. All right. Gamble, it's just been a pleasure having you on here. I appreciate it. This was an this is exciting for me. I hope to have you back uh at another time when you have some time. Yeah. To all those who are listening, this is Ronald S. Gamble of NASA. PhD. PhD. Doctor. 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 All the doctor, doctor, air doctor, Ronald yes, sir, of NASA. <laughs> uh, we appreciate you coming on the podcast. And for those who are listening, remember the mission statement when you're striving for greatness. God never puts you in the driver's seat. If it's taken, we are done mm-hmm. here. Absolutely. Peace.